0: Are we go there all right first of all thanks for coming back uh, you never take that for granted when you speak there for the first time so I could I could be speaking to an empty room I told Maureen I'm hoping that there's more than three people in the room after this morning so thank you so much for coming and I trust that the Lord by his design his appointment will bless you for the effort you're making to be here during uh, Family Bible Week um, again I just want to say how much uh, Maureen, I feel welcomed by you guys. Thank you, your warm church. I feel like I'm at home here, uh, for various reasons, um, and uh, so it's very special to us. Yeah, if you haven't got an outline, please do grab a hold of it. I think a couple of guys are walking around with us. Those I've on purpose. I've written quite a bit on those outlines because um, when I go to a seminar or a conference, I often uh, I like to take notes. I'm kind of OCD on taking notes but I'm not a very fast writer, and so um, I always, I'm always like two sentences behind trying to write things, so I've gone out of my way to write uh, some very important things down in the notes, so please do have uh, those in front of you as we, as we proceed um, this evening. Uh, first of all, before we get started, I, I thought it'd be good for you to see that I actually do have a family. Um, you've seen my wife, but uh, I, I have a picture. I actually had two pictures. Oh, there they are. There's, there's one of the, the family. I have six adult kids, um, ranging in age 31 down to 21. The 21 year is going to be a 22-year-old uh, next month. He's a, uh, the guy next to Maureen, the third from the left there. He's, um, he's our caboose on the train. He just got engaged. Uh, he's going to get married in January. Four of the six are married. Yeah, Grant, that guy next to Maureen, is... Um, He's getting married in January, and the guy next to me, the third from the right, uh, that's Titus, and uh, he has been dating for long too long, and, and uh, we're hoping any day we're going to get a, an engagement announcement. We're understanding that uh, under good uh, intel that he may creep under the wire and get married before January, before his younger brother gets married, so then we'll have all six. Uh, maybe tomorrow night he can have a picture of the grandkids, because that's the pride and joy, right? We have... We have uh, the six grown ones, uh, they're a delight, the da- one daughter, five sons, we did all things sports, um, I used to be an athlete, I know it doesn't look like it, um, but I used to be an athlete, and we've done everything that has a ball involved with it, and uh, we still enjoy participating, we play in a church softball league together, they stick me over to first base, because all I can do is, I have no range of motion, so that's, that's us, and uh, we have seven grandchildren, six years and under um and two in the oven uh one's going to be born in july and another one born in um in october yeah and this kind of kind of fun thing so uh too much family stuff here but i'm kind of proud of these guys um the daughter's the first she was born first and then we had five sons our first seven grandchildren are all boys um so we have 12 we don't know how to produce women um but in July, we get our first girl, so that's pretty fun, and we don't know what the one in October will be, but uh, anyway, that's uh, the Ball Vance clan, and by God's grace, and I can't, I, I put grace in all caps, underline, bold, print, truly, by God's grace, they all love the Lord, and they're walking with him, and they're, my, my sons are churchmen, I'm actually privileged that my daughter's married to one of my associate pastors, and um, and you talk about hitting the son-in-law jackpot uh, when I got Andrew for a son-in-law. He is gold. He's my executive pastor. Um, he is lift, he's, only, he's only been on staff for a few years. But, man, that guy is, I mean, you could not design a son-in-law better than that guy. I even I him better than my daughter. I mean, that's how good he is. Uh, no, that's not true. But, anyway. That's just to give you a little flavor of of there's a real family behind the the guy uh, that's talking uh, right now. So, okay, tonight we're going to pick up, I trust you were here this morning, we're going to kind of pick up with the same theme as we dealt with this morning. That is the theme of the heart, our hearts in marriage. I entitled this 12 Foundational Heart Principles for Marriage. Again, anything I say tonight is going to be by way of review if I say anything new I'll be shocked but these are principles that are going to ground us in our hearts for marriage Um, Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks well we can extend that certainly that out of the abundance of the heart we live right everything about us all the choices we make the decisions the directions, the priorities, the reactions, how we do every nook and cranny of life comes from the heart. And so Proverbs 4.23 tells us, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, you want to guard your mind, will, and emotions. You want to guard your heart with all diligence because everything is affected by what's going on in your spiritual heart. And um, in your opening paragraphs there on your notes, I write this. You live and do marriage out of your heart. What is in your heart spills out as you live with your spouse. These 12 principles are essential heart prerequisites to everything you do in marriage. For example, if these 12 truths are embraced and practiced from the heart, your communication will improve, your conflicts will be more effectively addressed, your role will be joyfully practiced, and your romance will be enhanced, just as a few examples of the areas of marriage. These principles focus on our individual hearts and crowd us individually to Christ. If and when these two, ind- two individual spouses love and live by these principles, healthy and happy marriages are cultivated. So what we're looking at here is we're going to talk about 12 um, issues of our hearts, and I am speaking to us, even though this is a marriage seminar, I'm speaking to us as individual spouses. I'm talking one-on-one to husbands I'm talking one-on-one to wives. Spare, uh, beware of the propensity to do the old elbow thing when I'm hitting on certain topics with your wife. Say, oh boy, I hope Sally's really keying in or Frank is really listening to this. I'm, I'm speaking to each of you individually. I find, I mentioned this this morning, I'll mention it again tonight, I find in my counseling ministry that most couples coming in for marriage counsel are wanting their spouse fixed most people do not dare say that they they're put together enough to know that probably wouldn't go over good with the counselor but in their hearts they're thinking i'm married to the bigger problem yeah i don't have it all together but he is the or she is the bigger problem i want to tonight implore you by the grace of god to focus in on my heart and let the lord take care of your spouse so let's ask the lord to help us before we dive in here father we're thankful for your word we're thankful for its design in every area you are perfect and gracious and wise and in marriage thank you for designing marriage the way you did as we saw this morning thank you for the highest priorities the highest goal of marriage to glorify you to to model the gospel of jesus christ lord help that to really sink into our the depths of our hearts and as we continue to look at our hearts lord help us to do business with our own hearts tonight that you might be greatly pleased and that we would be greatly blessed we ask in jesus name amen So consider all this tonight, a heart examination, heart examination. And we're going to get right to the first one on your list there. First heart principle, embracing God's will and design for my life. Embracing God's design and will for my life. Um, A lot of this, again, you'll just follow along your outline. You'll see me reading things that are off the outline and there's some other fill-ins as well. This is God's will for your life, review, to be saved, and live to please and glorify God. 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that, purpose clause, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Just starting right there, we're talking about marriage. We're talking about my heart in marriage. The fundamental priority. Bottom line, Christianity 101, I need to be saved and have my life dedicated to the will of God. That's what I need to embrace. Jesus died for me, he owns me, I belong to him, he's my benevolent, benign master. I live to serve him in all areas of life, including how I function as a spouse. The Christian life is living to please the Lord, not pleasing self. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, Paul wrote, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We must, if we're going to do marriage right, if we're going to honor God, we're going to be the testimony we spoke of this morning, our lives need to be dedicated to Christ. I'm just taking it for granted that I'm speaking to a group of Christians if you're not truly born again, if you have not embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, much of what I'm going to say tonight is not going to make sense to you, and it may even tick you off. Because I am not going to go light tonight on the call of God upon my life as a husband, or the call upon life for you as a husband or as a wife. This is very foundational. I embrace God's design for my life, and that is to submit to His Lordship. Luke 9.23 is a favorite verse of mine out of the Gospels. I call it Jesus's altar call. You know, some churches are big on altar calls. Um, You come forward, you ask Jesus into your heart type of thing. Well, here's Jesus's altar call, Luke 9, 23. And Jesus was saying to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That, friends, is what it means to become a Christian, and that's what it means to live as a Christian. I must deny myself. Three things here. First, I must deny myself. I mentioned it this morning. That is a strong word, deny. Repudiate self. I am done with me. Jesus says, you come to me, you're done with you. (laughs) I am going to take over your life as master and lord. And that's a good thing. If I said... I'm going to give my life to any other entity on the planet, any other person as master, Lord, that would be a really silly and dangerous thing. But we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about God in the flesh. We're talking about a benign, benevolent, blessed master. The best thing in the, my life could be to deny myself and to follow Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to do. You live that kind of life. Now you're postured to be a really amazing husband and wife if your life is committed to Christ. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That life, those familiar verses from Philippians, that's, that's, that's the, the, the self-denying life. That's living for Christ. David Platt writes, In a world where everything revolves around yourself, protect yourself promote yourself comfort yourself take care of yourself jesus says crucify yourself that's a counterculture you want a countercultural message there it is crucify die deny self jesus must be master and king he must sit on the throne of our hearts jesus says take up your cross secondly that must means we must be ready to suffer For Christ, even literally die for our allegiance and obedience to Jesus Christ. And friends, let's be honest. At times, there is suffering in marriage to varying degrees. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, be ready to suffer in your allegiance and obedience to me. There's going to be times in your marriage where you need to obey God Do the right thing and suffer for it. Even if your spouse is in a moment, maybe a day or a week or a season of disobedience. I'm ready to take up my cross and follow Jesus. I'm going to suffer righteously. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil. This is a great marriage verse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're going to talk more about suffering in just a moment. Third, Jesus said, follow me. That, of course, is implicit. That's obedience to God's word. Don't follow your flesh. Don't be a slave to your feelings. Don't follow man-made philosophies and psychologies. Follow Jesus Christ. Follow this perfect, inerrant, all-authoritative, all-sufficient word. This is what drives my life as a husband, as a wife. So, at any given moment, I think this is on your outline, at any given moment, here's a very practical thing. At any given moment in our interactions with our spouse, especially if there's a conflict going on, a good question to ask ourselves is, am I pleasing Jesus right now? Am I pleasing Jesus right now? Is my choice of words, my tone of voice, my body language, my behavior, is it making Jesus smile? I'm trying to be real basic here. If Jesus is sitting in the room and this interaction I've got going on with Maureen, and maybe there's some disagreement, some tension, something going on, I'm being irritable or she's got issue. Right now, am I pleasing Jesus that's God's goal for my life Conformity to the image of Christ this affects how I live in my home if I'm not acting that way I only have one biblical option repent quickly humbly ask for forgiveness and choose to act like a Christian there's been some times too many times in 35 years, where I've had to stop, and say, "Steve, start acting like a Christian. You're not acting like a believer right now. You need to repent, heart, attitudal change. Ask for forgiveness and get a reboot right now. Don't wait for tonight. Don't wait for tomorrow. Now we're going to talk about keeping short accounts later on. In your outline there, C.J. Mahaney writes this. You have no other choice as a Christian. You owe it to Jesus Christ to live for him, to make him your consuming passion and a driving force in your life. To do this, you have to die to your own desires daily. You have to crucify the urge that measures every action and decision around what is best for you. When you embrace Jesus Christ, you choose to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. Life is no longer living for you. It is about living to bless God and others. Boy, I'll tell you what, if if we lived right there, just that one verse, Luke 9.23, if we just lived that one verse (laughs) in marriage, what a monumental, significant change it would make on a daily basis. Second principle, second heart principle, embracing God's ultimate design for my marriage. You know what, I'm going to skip point two because that's what I said this morning. Point two was the message this morning. Embracing God's ultimate will for my marriage. Piper said the highest meaning and ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. So I'm I'm limited in time, so I'm not going to review all of that, but that is so significant. The main point is your life and your marriage is not about You, your life and your marriage recreated by God first and foremost to give him glory, to give him pleasure. So let's skip ahead to principle number three, cultivating my relationship with God. This is so important. Colossians chapter two, verse six. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. Just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. We must consistently use the means of grace to cultivate our relationship with the Lord. Here are such fundamental things. Again, these are foundational heart principles. But you know what? I run into a lot of really sweet people, a lot of really neat Christian people, and they're not consistently using. God's prescribed means of grace to grow they're very inconsistent in their we call it quiet times or devotions they're not very consistent in the word and if you really got behind the scenes they're not praying very much they're not praying very much about their own heart and for their family and so on and the third means of grace that I think is so important is body life really true robust fellowship men with men women with women close in my face accountability that encourages me prays for me and holds me to the highest these are important aspects to marriage i need to cultivate my relationship with god and god has given me means in the word to direct me in how to grow cultivating close communion with the Lord, being controlled by the Spirit, not the flesh, gazing at Jesus and glancing at our spouse, having our minds continually renewed by the truth of Scripture is what equips us to love and serve and forgive and communicate and make love to our sinful spouse. The inner strength of my heart. And you know this well. The strength of your personal Walk with the Lord will determine how you relate to your spouse. The old illustration has been used a thousand times. If I take the lid off of this this bottle here and I shake it and I tip it over, what comes out? What's inside, right? What's inside comes out. That's what we need to realize. As we go day by day in our Christian walk, what's in here? What's going on? If I'm going to fill my heart with the mind of christ the scripture if i'm going to be walking in the spirit i need to be spending time in the word i need to be spending time praying my heart out i need to be mixing it up with fellow believers that spur me on to love and good deeds that's very very essential i said this morning that many marriage problems are god problems and that is true. They're not marriage problems. What I mean by that, the root, the, the, the root of unresolved conflict is that I'm living in obedience to God's word. My mind, my will, and emotions are not saturated and controlled by God, rather by my flesh. I can't be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit and not be kind and forgiving and affectionate and communicative with Maureen. So, if the fruit of the Spirit is not being manifest in my life with Maureen at any given moment, if you're not seeing the fruit of the Spirit in clusters hanging off my the branches of my heart and life, the problem, the problem is not with Maureen. The problem's with me. I need to examine in my heart what's my relationship with God like? A person has a Tight relationship with God, if they're growing in their affections for Jesus Christ, they're overwhelmed with the grace of God and the gospel. That kind of heart, when you tip it over, when even difficulties and perhaps provoking things happen, what's in the heart comes out. And we want it to be Jesus. All right. Number four, fourth heart principle. Studying and practicing the gospel is central to my marriage. Studying and practicing the gospel is central to my marriage. The gospel not only gets you to heaven, it is the example and power by which you function in your relationship with fellow sinners. The amazing grace of the gospel must transcend my mind. It's got to transcend my brain, if you will, and the truths of the gospel and grip my soul. The Gospel explains that our most obvious and basic problem is sin has separated us from God and from each other. Thus, we are objects of God's wrath. A Christian understands the necessity of the cross. Our sin was so bad that it required the blood, the blood of God, to take it away. Without the cross, we are at war with God— And he is at war with us. But praise God that he loves sinners and Jesus died on the cross, ending our war with God and reconciling us to himself. And I put on your outline there, the gospel not only reconciles you to God, when practiced in your marriage, it repeatedly, over years and decades, reconciles you to your spouse over and over again. That is a very sweet thing on your notes again as you ruminate on the cross of jesus christ and the unfathomable undeserved love and grace of god freely given to you in the gospel you are compelled to lavish that same love on the sinners in your life beginning with your spouse keeping short accounts pursuing reconciliation and so on the gospel friends The gospel must be the atmosphere of our marriages. It is the life-giving air that we breathe throughout the days and years of marriage. This is very important. Um, Just a spoiler alert, tomorrow night, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about point number four, and we're going to expand on that. I am convinced that too many believers are not giving enough attention to the gospel throughout the course of their Christian life. Early on, as they were contemplating um, receiving Christ, they knew the gospel, they were saturated in it. Maybe the early months or years, they they were amazed by it, but over time, they lose focus on it. And I tell you, we need the gospel for daily life, especially marriage, not just to get to heaven but to do life we need we need it and we need to be focused on it i need to be more and more in awe and amazed at what jesus did to seek me and save me and when i'm overwhelmed i'm growing in overwhelmness with that unconditional love how in god's green earth could i ever hold things against my wife who's and i'll get to this in a moment far less of a sinner than i am how could i do that so when I see couples going at it, man, they're, they're just angry. They're bitter. They just can't forgive. They're resentful. They're holding grudges. I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. You have lost sight of the grace of God in your life and what Jesus has done to save you and keep you and hold you. We need to be focused on the gospel. I'm stealing all my thunder from to- tomorrow night, but come back and we're going uh, to camp on that more thoroughly number five number five and I think we'll we'll look at this one and should we take a break Rob would that be good we'll take this principle and then we'll take a little break and we'll finish the rest I think this is really important try to track with me here again we're talking about our individual hearts as a husband and a wife in marriage what is going to help me cultivate a God-honoring spirit, what is going to preserve my joy, my contentment, my peace, my calmness of heart in my marriage if I'm in a a season of difficulty? What's protecting me? And it's number five. Seeking my joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ Not in my spouse. This is very, very important. Paul commanded us in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. You know the context. Paul's writing from prison. Nobody in the New Testament absent Jesus. Nobody in the New Testament suffered more than the apostle Paul and nobody's more joyful in the New Testament than Paul Paul is our case study in going through very harsh difficult circumstances and maintaining a joy in the Lord God himself, friends must be the source of our security and joy not your spouse. This happens all the time. It's very natural. It's pro- it's happened to me. It's, I'm sure it's happened to you. I'm just subtly, subconsciously looking for my joy in Maureen instead of finding it in the Lord. How easy it is to make our marriage an idol and to depend on our husband or wife to be our source of joy. It seems that we are hardwired, even as Christians, to think that God plus something else is the equation for joy in my life. Now we know, we're well taught that Jesus plus nothing equals, Jesus plus faith plus nothing equals salvation. I know I, I had nothing other than faith in the finished work of Christ to be saved. That's the equation for salvation. But also the equation for salvation or for sanctification and joy is Jesus plus nothing. (laughs) I have everything in Jesus for my joy. We must understand, I think this is in your outline, we must understand that there is not a spouse alive who can fill the God-shaped vacuum in the human heart. Gary Thomas, great quote on your outline there. We need to remind ourselves of the ridiculousness of looking for something from other humans that only God can provide. He goes on to write, I believe that much of the dissatisfaction we experience in marriage comes from expecting too much from it. My wife can't be God. And I was created with a spirit that craves God. Anything less than God, and I feel an ache. We were created to find our deepest satisfaction in the Lord. If we are truly intimate and satisfied in the Lord, we won't make such severe demands on our spouse, asking them, expecting them to compensate for our spiritual emptiness. So important say well how do i know how do i know if my spouse has become a heart idol how do i know if if my if i'm expecting too much of my spouse for my emotional well-being well i think it's quite simple actually just look at the dashboard of your heart if you will are you angry at them? Are you bitter at them? Are you resentful at them? When, when things are not going well between the two of you, does your emotional needle go to empty or close to empty? How do I know when I've got my heart being overtaken by idols, when I've, when I've allowed other things, even marriage, to replace God as the source of my joy? I look at my emotions They they, they tell me the truth. They show me, oh, Steve, you're relying on Maureen, not me, for your joy. And I see this a lot in marriage counseling. It's very common. If If I'm in the pit of despair, and if I'm battling even depression, or at least severe discouragement that's almost paralyzing me, I have to say, I'm looking to a person other than Jesus to fill my my vacuum, my heart. And that's a red light on the dashboard of my heart. So, one of the ways we cultivate our hearts for marriage to be that husband or wife that would glorify God is to seek our joy and satisfaction in jesus that doesn't mean that there isn't a ton of joys in marriage i gotta stop you know let me take a little sidestep here for a moment talk about a lot of the challenges of marriage did so this morning doing so tonight might sound like man i would like to get behind the scenes Have those guys ever laugh is it ever fun is it i want to tell you just on i'm one of the funnest guys on the planet all right um my wife, we have a blast. Our kids, you saw them up there. I mean, it, it was a house full of just hooting and hollering and just good times. But you know what? There's also sin. Happens. Between us in the family mix, we'll talk about that in a couple evenings, sin happens, right? We need help dealing with all that issues. So even right now when I'm saying about heart idols and replacement and joy and your needle going to empty, it's like, No, there's a lot, a lot of good in marriage. But you know what? If you don't learn to deal with sin, if you don't learn to deal with the issues of your heart, if you don't follow Jesus' altar call and daily deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, you're going to have some really big issues going on, inevitably. You can only hold it together for so many months or years until real problems start spiking and so on. So this this idea, this truth of seeking our joy and satisfaction in Jesus is very, very critical. One of my favorite psalms, the end of Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, speaking of the Lord, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. That's my, that's a dual, that prayer there in Psalm 73 is both like a confession and it's also a petition. Because I don't get it right all the time. I don't always seek my joy in the Lord as I ought. So it's a confession Lord, forgive me for going to other places for my joy, including a spouse. But Lord, at the same time, it's my earnest prayer. I want you to be the strength and the joy of my heart. And note this and we'll take a break. God in his providence. God in his providence. Because he loves you so much. And he knows the greatest thing for your individual life and heart is intimacy with him. He knows your highest joy and satisfaction and contentment is truly in him and not anything else, not even all the really good things of life like marriage and family because God loves you so much in his providential power, he will remove some of those God replacements, even good ones, at least temporarily. By that I mean, even in a good marriage, Maureen and I, by God's grace, have a really sweet marriage. But he will give us times where things are tense, things are difficult. And it's a good reminder to us, you look to Jesus for your joy and your satisfaction. Have your tank filled so that when this thing starts happening, your heart gets tipped over, he's coming out. But more importantly, God wants you to be intimate with Him. And in His faithfulness, He'll pick away at those idols. We're going to talk about children in a couple evenings. Children are one of the biggest idols in parents' life, period. Their successes, their performances, how they're doing. I mean, you want to ride an emotional roller coaster, parent teenagers. God will be faithful to providentially allow difficulty. One of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons is he wants us to cry out to him, to be intimate with him, to be close with him, to glorify him in our affections and our devotion and our closeness to him. So you say, I've got struggles, Steve, in my marriage. It's really hard. I battle for joy. I'm sad. I'm lonely. My heart goes out to you, but but dare I say it's God knocking on the door of your heart. I want in. I want to own you more. I want you to see like Paul that you can rejoice in the Lord in the dungeon of life. Circumstances. God loves you that much. He's not an ogre. He's not, you're not a laboratory rat. He's doing experiments on, poking at you. No. He'll remove those heart idols. He'll chip away at them in large and small ways because he so wants us to find our joy in him. That's a joy that's inexplicable. So seeking my joy and satisfaction in my spouse is a big, big deal. Let's pray and let's have a break. Father, thank you for just these opening principles, Lord. I pray, God, that in my own heart that you will do a further work, that they would be true of me and my relationship with you, and I pray that for my friends here. Lord, I pray that you would be doing heart surgery on us as we examine ourselves afresh in these matters, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About how many minutes? Five minutes? Five minutes, and then we'll be back together. year old man back there who was a pastor. He married 68 and a half years. All right. okay I think we're going to go ahead and uh, take our places again please I wish that we um, had the luxury of just sitting down one-on-one if myself and Maureen could transparently share our hearts with you one-on-one as couples that would be ideal obviously that's completely hypothetical impossible to do but often uh, what we do is we're beginning uh, marriage counseling with a couple we will actually walk through something very similar to this to walk through these 12 principles because this lays the foundation for marriage no matter what season it's in uh, all of this is applicable, even for some of you have very strong marriages today, and you're you're sitting here going, um, "Yeah, this is a nice refresher and everything." But all is well. I'm 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 doing quite well on these twelve things. But some of you are struggling more. I'm sure there runs a gamut in a group this size. I wish we had that opportunity to just sit down and share with each other. This is the second best as me just presenting them to you. But I trust that um, these are helpful to you. Tomorrow night, I'm, I'm uh, just a, a little prime your pump there. Uh, we might have a little bit of a QA, question and answer time blended in with the time tomorrow night that can, we could talk a little bit about the things we shared this morning in the morning message and the things tonight and some of the things tomorrow. And then also as we get into parenting stuff on Tuesday and Wednesday night, um, want to incorporate a little bit of that. I can't do a lot of it. Um, but certainly would like to hear if there's anything that we can clarify or give some practical help with. So, anyway, so far we're looking at these 12 principles. We've looked at embracing God's design and will for my life, embracing God's ultimate design and will for my marriage, cultivating my relationship with God, studying and practicing the gospel that is central in my marriage, and seeking my joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ and not in my spouse. Those principles, coupled with the ones we're going to look at now, I would submit to you, place our heart in a right place where communication, conflict resolution, functioning in true biblical harmony in our roles in marriage, dealing with in-law problems, financial issues, physical intimacy issues, all of those things are directly affected by these 12 principles. This is the foundation, if you will. If you I'm not a, a carpenter, but I've been on construction sites. Foundations are formed, and there's rebar that's crisscrossed and everything to form a strong foundation. These 12 principles are the rebar in the foundation of your marriage. If you don't have a strong foundation, houses crumble. If you don't have strong heart foundations in your marriage, it's going to be weak at best, and sometimes it crumbles. Um, one word before we go on, something I've, I've I've had the unique opportunity to be 35 years in the same church. I've been I just last week celebrated 35 years in my church. I've seen generations now. Right, I'm marrying children of children. I mean, I've did their parents' wedding, I've done their kids' weddings. I've seen a lot and walking through all this. One of my greatest sadnesses, one of my greatest sadnesses is to see what I thought I thought were strong marriages on the surface, but behind the scenes they were weak. And I to my shame I took it for granted that things were well and it wasn't keen enough to detect that it wasn't. And so without becoming cynical, I trust not being cynical or suspicious, um, in this season of my life, I take nothing for granted. I, I don't take appearances. I recently went through one of the hardest counseling scenarios in my history as a pastor. And it was with a dear friend, dear couple, that had really hard, ongoing stuff behind the scenes. And they didn't reach out early enough for help. By God's grace, after several years of counseling now, they're restored. But it was, it was tough. And I'm telling you, just, on a, just being transparent, ripped our guts out. Um, so I look at you folks. And I'm not making assumptions one way or the other. How do I know? I don't even know you. But all that to say, I've been doing ministry long enough and been in the trenches of hard stuff with marriages to not take it for granted as I look at happy faces. I know that there's stuff that goes on behind the scenes. I told you this morning, Maureen and I are a piece of work. Yeah, married 35 years by God's grace, a good marriage, but it has not been all easy there are difficulties in all marriages you look at certain marriages oh they never have any problems there's like .001% of marriages can claim that they've really not had struggles there may be somebody here in this room blessings on you the rest of us have wrestled and struggled and what I'm presenting to you in these 12 principles I didn't find this out of a book this has just come out of my life my own life in learning how to be a husband, and Maureen learning to be a wife, and in counseling, I've got the same—if you can believe it—I've got the same love seat in my office that I got in 1986. I mean, that thing is soaked in tears. It's my—it's my counseling couch, and we've—I got one guy; his marriage was, by God's grace, rescued <laughs> about ten years ago. Vladis' marriage about ten years ago. And he told me, Steve, Pastor Steve, you ever get rid of that couch? I'm buying it because my marriage got saved on that couch. And it's got my my tears and my wife's tears on that couch. Um, So all of this, even though it's not super fluid and maybe the most articulate presentation you ever had, it's coming from the heart because I really care about you guys because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we live 2,000 miles apart from each other. Behind the scenes, there may be some struggles and I just want to help. So thank you for bearing with me as we continue to walk through this and we talk tomorrow night about what it looks like to practice the gospel of marriage. So number six principle here, this is so important. It gets really to the root of true humility, which is so essential in the Christian life. God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. I cannot live the Christian life without humility. Humility is the power of God. Or the grace of God is the power of God to do the Christian life. And God very explicitly says, I give my grace. I pour it out to the humble. I'm opposed to the proud. I give my grace to the humble. And this principle here, believing that I, Steve, I am the chief of sinners in my marriage not maureen if i'm going to look for the primary culprit of the problems in my marriage i look in the mirror i don't look across the table at maureen i am the chief of sinners i would submit to you that if a person could really grab a hold of the theological robustness of this truth I am the chief of sinners, not my spouse, not my kids, not everybody else in my life that makes things difficult. No, I am. That would go a long way to the waterfall of grace being poured out on me to react to the legitimate struggles that are in my life, often caused by other people in my sphere of influence. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Paul wrote this, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, whom I am foremost of all. Other verses, I am the chief of sinners. Now, you know, Paul was one of the most godly men in the New Testament, but he understood the wickedness of his own heart. I do not believe personally that this was false modesty on Paul's part. No, he was a student of his own fleshly heart and it was ugly nobody understood nobody taught human depravity in the new testament better than paul but he didn't just know the doctrine of depravity he knew his own depravity he is in effect saying here in first timothy one look i know my own sin And what I've seen in my own heart is darker and more awful, is more proud, selfish, and self-exalting. It is more consistently and regularly in rebellion against God than anything I've glimpsed in the heart of anyone else. As far as I can see, Paul would say, I am the biggest sinner I know. And I'm telling you, That attitude radically impacted how he treated the other sinners in his life. His humble self-evaluation radically impacted how he treated others. You will not find a more gracious, patient, long-suffering, forgiving man than Paul. We don't idolize him. We don't deify him. But that was a godly man. And that dude had a lot of bad things done to him. Undeservedly so. But he steps back and he examines himself and says, I'm the worst guy I know. Apart from Christ, outside of Christ, I am the worst guy I know. And that, that attitude of humility and brokenness and honesty and transparency before God was the recipient of, Of this waterfall of grace. tell you, I've seen this over and over and over in marriage counseling. Subtle, cleverly disguised self-righteousness. It's the arch enemy in marriage. Finger pointing, blaming, accusing. It's death to a relationship. And it's so common. Rare is the couple that comes in marriage counseling says by the way Pastor Steve we're in here together but I know I'm the biggest problem I I mean I yeah Sally she's got to work on some stuff but really I know I'm a, I'm a wreck and I'm my heart and so yeah we're here together bottom line is I need help that's not very common it should be more common but it's not I would appeal to you In your marriage, look at yourself, get a good glimpse of your heart, examine yourself before the Lord, see what flesh is there, and own it. Our spouse is not the enemy. Our own sinful flesh is. The enemy, friends, in our lives is not outside us, it's inside biggest problems that we're facing are not outside us they're inside us that's why we so desperately need the savior to forgive us over and over and over to restore us to give us perspective to remind us of the lavish love the unconditional love we received the long suffering. I should be incinerated in hell 10,000 times over. But daily, the recipient of God's grace that overcomes this chief of sinner heart of mine. I'm living there. My heart is there. Boy, I'm a communicator, I'm a humble reconciler. I'm a very tender lovemaker. I'm exercising my role as head of the home in a very servant-hearted way, not controlling and manipulative and abusive, but I'm leading and I'm taking charge, but humbly when I've got this kind of heart. Dave Harvey outline quote there for you the cause of our marriage battles friends is neither our marriage nor our spouse it is the sin in our hearts entirely totally exclusively without exception this is taught clearly and consistently in scripture from the first sin to the final judgment in addressing the futile attempts by the pharisees to treat sin as something out there Jesus offers a penetrating and fully sufficient diagnosis of our root problem. Matthew 15, verse 18. Jesus said, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things that defile the man. James takes this fundamental principle of human nature and drives it home, applying it to our personal relationships. I'm sure you're very familiar with this text. Use this all the time in counseling. James chapter 4, opening three verses. James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I don't have time to fully unpack that. But Jesus in Matthew 15 and James in chapter 4 are just cutting it straight. The source of our relationship problems is our own Fleshly hearts, verses one and two again is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust, and you do not have you, so you commit murder. You're envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The human heart want, I want. 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 My desires, fleshly, lustful passions not just sexual, I want something from you and you're not giving it to me. So I fight and quarrel. So I put it on your outline there. Our biggest problem is not around us or outside of us. The problem's inside us. G.K. Chesterton was once asked, what is wrong with the world? And his answer was, I am. What's the greatest problem in my marriage? I am. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh sets a desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that I may not do the things that you please. Put it in your outline. There it is. The, The sides in the war are not husband versus wife. It is a clash of desires. The desires of the flesh versus the desires of the spirit. It is trench warfare for the supremacy of the human heart. So I need to do battle with my flesh, not with my spouse. I need to be regularly before the Lord and seeing my own proud, selfish, stubborn heart. And confess that to God crucifying mortifying that flesh asking for his forgiveness and asking for his power I must see myself as the biggest sinner an awful wretched sinner and at the same time realize that Jesus has unconditionally loved me and died for me and freely forgiven me, and continues to bless me, in spite of my continued sinfulness, it is then that I cannot tolerate my sinful... It is then that I cannot only tolerate my sinful spouse, but more so love and forgive and serve them in their severely fallen state. As wretched as I am in the eyes of a holy God, yet freely forgiven and loved unconditionally, how then can I dare... To withhold forgiveness and kindness and affection from my sinful spouse how can I ref- how can I live in a cold war how can I hold them at arm's distance how could I dare do that when I'm immersed in the one side of the coin of my wretchedness and the flip side of the coin of the glories of the gospel that God loves me and redeems me and cleanses me and holds me and blesses me so undeservedly. How in God's green earth can I be immersed in that truth and not be a sweet spouse to my wife and her to me? But I'm afraid And in the busyness of life, in the go, 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 do, 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 even in the busyness of religion, I don't spend enough time in the gospel. Again, we're going to hit this hard tomorrow night. So, uh, and you're outlining the question there. Who do you think is the biggest sinner in your marriage? How you answer that question will dramatically affect the healing and or the health of your marriage. Number seven. Seven heart Seventh-heart principle. Believing that God is sovereign and good. This is good. I know you're well taught in the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 46. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God. There's no one like me declaring the end from the beginning, the ancient things from things that have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Lamentations 3, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We could go on and on. One of the, my favorite doctrines in the Bible is the sovereignty of God. The profound, I put this on your outline. The profound truth of Scripture is that every detail of your life is planned by your good and loving Heavenly Father. By the way, sovereignty would be a scary doctrine if we didn't know that God was loving and wise and good all the time. You know, you say, boy, sovereignty, ultimate control, that's dangerous. You guys, guys like Hitler, that's a bad deal. Well, When you've got the God of the universe who's glorious in all his perfections, perfect in love and wisdom and righteousness and goodness and kindness and all his attributes that are just glorious, wow, I want him in charge. I want him in control of every detail of my life, even the difficult details. The Westminster Catechism states, for God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. (laughs) that is profound this includes all this includes who you are married to and all the daily challenges that come with that what's my point here i'm talking about a heart principle of believing placing your faith in the truth that god is sovereign over every detail of your life including every minute detail of your marriage and your family. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? That a good, loving God is in charge of every detail of your life. Not just the good stuff, the easy stuff, but the hard stuff. A good God. Some maniacal laboratory professor doing experiments on us. That's the lies of the devil. A good God is the controls of your life. Where this gets practical is, and I find it, as I've tried to help couples, is to remind them it's no accident who you're married to. It's no accident. God gave you your spouse on purpose for your good and for his glory. He said, well, Pastor Steve, you don't know my background, When we got married, man, it was just flesh flying around, and we got married for all the wrong reasons, and this, and boy, I should never done that, and boy, he was that, or she was that, and I'm sorry, yeah, I, do, I don't know all the details. I do know that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. You're married now. You said vows, did you not? Yeah. You're married now. And God's in charge of that. God's so big, he can even be in charge of sin without being the author of it. That's wild. God's not to blame for the sin. Bad choice. Yep, you know what? We could talk all day about not a good choice. Nope, not condoning bad choice. But God's using that now in your life. Can't play the card, well, I should have never got married, so it wasn't the right one. No, it's the right one. It's the right one now. And I'll say it lightly. Boy, you talk about other heartaches over the years. Oh, my goodness. Some pleading with, oh, One gal comes to mind just pleading with her, don't marry him. Please don't marry him. Married him. It's God's will. I love him. He's boy, you guys just don't understand what a great guy he is. Yeah, I don't. I didn't. And he ended up destroying this lady. She's still married to him. My wife just had a sweet lunch with this gal this past week before we came. She walks with the Lord. She loves the Lord. But now i tell you about a train wreck of a marriage and family. God's using it in her life you talk about severe mercies severe mercies there hard things but man she is about the sweetest lady you'll ever want to meet God's done some hard things through that whole thing but God is sovereign so if you're ever tempted to think I need to Get out of this marriage because I married the wrong one. I would appeal to you to think differently. And we don't have time to talk about divorce or remarriage and put my initials SJB next to this. I do believe that there are biblical grounds for separation and divorce. Very carefully, slowly, methodically, patiently dealt with. I'm not saying that there's never, ever an exit but far far i think you'd all agree far too many couples are too quick to run to the fleshly uh, exit of marriage when there aren't really biblical grounds number eight ties in with number seven viewing my marriage as a positive means of my sanctification on your outline there god's highest good for you and me is to increase in our intimate fellowship with jesus christ and conform to his image that is to sanctify us make us more holy in our character and behavior the familiar verses romans 8 28 29 and we know that god causes all things to work together for good to those who love god to those who are called according to his purpose for those who he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. I never quote Romans 8.28 without quoting 8.29. Because 29 defines the good of 28. All things work together for good. What's the good? The good is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the good. In the course of marriages, all things work together for good. Well, that means... Uh, Next week, my spouse is going to be on the cover of Focus of the Family as the most renovated spouse of, of 2021. No, it may not be that good. It may be the good, and I believe it is, that Lord is using that sinful spouse in cultivating your character to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Put it on your outline there. Few things accomplish sanctification in our lives more than marriage and parenting. Anybody want to disagree with that? Any disagreements with that one? Really? Marriage exposes our sinfulness and our selfishness like nothing else can. You've heard this a hundred times. I used to think I was a pretty selfless guy. And then I got married. It's like, oh, goodness gracious, man. Didn't see that. I've I've said at the marriage altar, I've used this joke too many times. You can imagine how many weddings I've done over the years, but <laughs> I like to say love is blind, but marriage is an eye opener. Yeah. That's one of my favorite, you know. You wanna you wanna find out what's really going on in here, get married, and then if marriage isn't enough, start having a gaggle of kids. And all of a sudden you realize I need sanctification. There is a lot of rough edges on Steve. Uh, Gary Thomas wrote a book entitled Sacred Marriage. It's a book I've given away many times as a marriage gift. Sacred Marriage. I love the, t- the subtitle to the book is this. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? There's another countercultural thing in counter-Christian culture. God wants me to be happy. I would argue, yes, you are right. God does want us to be supremely happy. And holiness is the road to happiness. He doesn't, you know, take an exit around holiness to get to happiness. And God uses marriage to make me more holy, not necessarily more happy. I would contend when two spouses are pursuing holiness, happiness is on the horizon. Big time. Big time. Editing on my feet when you have a pause like this. You only saw how many notes I have. You'd say, "Steve, you're crazy. What are you doing?" Um, let me just say this. Let me just—I put this question out. Right what, what do you want most in life? Let's just—these just, are just good self examining What—what do you honestly want most in life? To become more like Jesus, which I would contend the Scripture's goal is for you. To be conformed to the image of Jesus or to have a happy marriage? What do you want more? The answer to that question will largely determine how we respond to our spouse when they sin against us and whether or not we'll experience the fullest happiness that God wants us to enjoy. What a perspective. To view my marriage... As a positive means of my sanctification. The the calling of God upon my life to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. And he uses all the things of life. He's sovereign over all of it, including marriage challenges. Number nine, obeying God's word even when I don't feel like it or I'm being sinned against. There's a commitment. I'm putting my, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm, I'm, I'm putting a stake in the ground. Steve is going to obey scripture even if I feel like I'm being sinned against. Your outline there, a great challenge in maturing as a Christian is becoming obedience-oriented as opposed to feelings-oriented. That is a big biblical counseling truth. It's helping those we're trying to help trying to help people to become obedience oriented, not feelings oriented. We live in a culture I think it's just human nature in every culture. We we live by our feelings we're we're not living obedience oriented, we're living feelings oriented Too too often we allow our emotions to dictate our actions rather than having our minds and wills controlled by the word of God even if your spouse is sinning You must choose to do what is right. It is so common to excuse our disobedience and sin because our spouse sinned against us. But God does not accept our excuses or our blame shifting. Romans chapter 12 is so good, so good on this. An obedience-oriented life. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those with those who weep be of the same mind toward one another do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly do not be wise in your own estimation verse 17 never pay back evil for evil to anyone including a spouse respect what is right in the sight of all men if possible so far as it depends on you Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, in marriage... You must choose to overcome evil with good. Again, I just reiterate what I said earlier. I'm not painting the picture like, man, 24-7, everything is just a big battle with good and evil. No, but just stuff happens, right? When things go on, even the smallest little things, overcome evil with good. There's, there's certain times, a little window into my life, there's certain times my wife will insert little advice for me. Silly things, I'd be embarrassed to even say it to you like just doing stuff even on this trip she'll insert like hey why don't we do this and my fuss goes I know what a better right and I go just stop right there Steve you're an idiot just shoot do good just humble your heart be thankful you got a smart wife higher IQ than you got and just do what she wants I put it in the outline it's never hypocritical to obey God and do the right thing even if you don't feel like it Some people say, oh, it's just a hypocritical. I didn't feel like doing the good thing. Uh, And the problem with that? It's lame. It's never wrong to do a biblically good thing, even if you don't feel like it. Do the right thing because it's the right thing. You need to behave like who you are in Christ, and you can You are not powerless. I love these things. I think I have them on your outline. You're not hopeless and you're not powerless. You can obey. You can obey. God, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you. And you can choose to obey. Before Christ, you're a slave of sin. In Christ, you're free. You're a slave of righteousness. That's who you are. You have new identity, you're in union with Christ. You can make right choices, even when you don't feel like it. You can do that. I said you're a new creation of Christ. You're no longer a slave of sin. You're a slave of righteousness. With every temptation, God gives you a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10 13. You've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can. And that's so important in marriage. That's a foundational heart principle. Do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. Number 10, loving and serving my spouse in the midst of my suffering. There may be circumstances and seasons over the course of your marriage when you are mistreated or suffering to varying degrees because of your spouse. There may even be times when you feel like your spouse is an enemy. So in your outline, say, what does the Bible teach us about responding to individuals who who cause us undeserved suffering. The flesh says, get even with them, sin back at them, retaliate, take revenge. But that is not what Jesus taught us or modeled for us. Luke chapter 6, verse 31, treat others the same way you want to treat them, not the way they are treating you, in other words, golden rule. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners choose to love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those who, whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Verse thirty-five. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will sons of the Most High. For I love this. Catch this. For He Himself is kind. To ungrateful and evil men. Ah. When am I most like Jesus? When I'm kind to ungrateful and evil men. And sometimes that can have happen in marriage. Kindness, just simple. was blown away by studying the Last Supper Jesus on the eve of his horrific suffering, spiritual suffering, physical suffering, the worst suffering, on st- I mean the worst of all time, all human history he's on the eve of this worst betrayal, pain suffering, abandonment and he's serving his disciples who had just been arguing about who's the greatest for crying out loud And he's washing their feet. Amazing. Jesus understands suffering. And he calls us to follow his example. We've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was the seed any found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Very quickly, the last two will take two minutes to cover both. Number 11, heart principle. Working hard to be a godly spouse. And I'm talking, I put this on your outline, hard work of the soul. Not just doing a lot of things, but heart work. Everything I'm talking about here is our heart. Lord, examine my heart. Help me in my heart to embrace these truths. From the inside out, I want to live. I don't want to just... Just have external behavior modification and pull myself up by the bootstraps and act like a good husband or wife no god i want you to work on my heart humble me overwhelm me with your grace and forgiveness and kindness strengthen me to understand your purposes that you're sovereign help me to see your highest purpose for marriage help me to do that heart work hard heart work of examination and being before you in brokenness and humility and confession and contriteness, that your waterfall of grace can come upon me and it can spill over to my wife, my husband. Lord, hard work. All that I'm talking about is not going to happen passively. Becoming a godly husband or wife is not a passive thing. It's intentional. It's personal. It takes hard work. Let go and let God is not a biblical way to grow as a husband or wife. No, just let go. Hopefully by osmosis, this will all sink in. Not. Don't wait for that. We need to be obedient doers of the word, not merely hearers. We need to put the Bible into practice in our marriage, even when it's very hard to do. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. On your outline there, are marriages are well worth the blood, sweat, and tears required to cultivate and strengthen them. There is tremendous hope for spouses and marriages that will work hard. Weak marriages can be strengthened, praise God. Wounded marriages can be healed, praise God. Sad marriages can be made happy, but not without holy sweat. We are not hopeless, and we are not powerless. We have Jesus Christ. We have the Bible. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have a gazillion solid Christian marriage resources to instruct us like no other generation has had. We have the resources powerful to be who we ought to be. We can change for the better if we'll work at it. And lastly, appropriating god's abundant grace that enables you to be a god-honoring spouse all the previous 11 principles require the grace of god in your life and god promises to supply all the grace we need if we will humble our hearts before him but he gives a greater grace therefore it says god is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble cultivating a godly marriage is grace-empowered effort it's not done in the power of the flesh. Philippians 2. So that my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. I would say work out your marriage with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I put in your outline there, cultivating our marriages is God's work. But we must cooperate with him by actively applying his word in our relationships. All of God's commands are his enablings. What I mean by that is, God never commands us anything in scripture that he does not promise the grace to obey. He's not like Pharaoh in the Old Testament make me bricks, but no straw. No, God commands the bricks. But he gives all the straw, gives all the power, all the resources we need. Father, thank you. Thank you for your wonderful design of marriage. Thank you that you know us inside and out. You know which each individual in this room needs tonight. Maybe it was just simply a reminder. Maybe it was simply just an attaboy, a good pat on the back, a good affirmation of these things, fully engaged. Do bless that individual who's walking strong in the couple of the, in this season of life. Thank you for that marriage, but Lord, for the others of us that were not quite at that pinnacle. Lord, we're, we're struggling in various ways and various degrees. Father, would you please pour out grace on us to grab a hold of whatever nugget was there tonight that would be helpful. Lord, you're awfully big enough created the world you hold all things in your hand you can certainly work in our hearts to pinpoint what we need and apply it and I would humbly ask that you do that for the marriages in this room may humility reign supreme a tender soft heart to you clinging to you for all we're worth thank you that you're holding us fast in jesus name amen hope to see you